Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Karen Henson. What's up? What's going on, Karen? Back in the studio today. I know, right? (laughs) Today, we've got a longer conversation with three friends talking about some of the pressing issues of a lot of the racial tensions in our country. So we're just going to talk to them about all of these issues and how we can be better equipped to follow Jesus in this unique time. So I hope this conversation is helpful. We are excited today to have three friends with us, which is kind of unique. We normally don't have that many. I know this never happens. I mean, (laughs) but the fact that we even have three friends is pretty amazing. And two of them even (laughs) came here to sit with us. I know, right? I feel so special. (laughs) But uh, we actually have three uh, different Institute, Watermark Institute grads sitting here with us. So Five. Five. Okay. Yes, you're right. I mean, I'm talking about our guests, but you're right. All five of us are Institute grads. You're right. Mm. Stand corrected, curriculum, Karen. (laughs) 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 So the first one was actually in Karen's Institute class, and his name is Stedman Valentine. Well, what? (laughs) (laughs) And Stedman actually lives in Branson, Missouri now, which is fairly new, I think. And so, Stedman, why don't you take a few minutes and just introduce yourself? Thanks, Nathan. So uh, I finished the Watermark Institute class in 2017. I finished the Watermark Fellowship and I worked in city politics for a little while. I was a council assistant for a Dallas City Council member, Adam McGue, who attends Watermark himself. And right now I am uh, the head coach of a prep school called Linkier Prep in Branson, Missouri, which we take kids out of high school and try to more root them in their faith before they go into secular college campuses who will tell them otherwise and try to talk them out of their faith. So that was a dream of link here. We just added a basketball program on uh, five years later, sent over 40 players to Division One. had our first guy uh, enter NBA draft. He's a class. He played a year, Mason Jones. So uh, we're getting after it and using basketball as a way of discipleship. So. I love it, man. That's so cool. We've also got Elizabeth Hoffman, and Elizabeth's institute year was? 2018, finished May of 2019. So Elizabeth is on staff here. She works on our external focus team. So why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about you and what you do around here? Sure. Um, I'm Elizabeth. Nice to meet you guys. I am from Plano, grew up in the Dallas area, and have been on staff here for a whole year officially. Nice. Woo! I know. Crazy. I love it. What a fast year. What do you do on the external focus? Team? So I'm what we call the impact areas coordinator, and that's just kind of a fancy term for it. I help um, with our partnerships. And so we've got 10 impact areas. So it's everything from schools to prisons, local, international, life initiative, family restoration. There are 10 of those. And there's a leader over each one. Some of them are on staff. Some of them aren't. And I essentially just hold them accountable to connecting our body to their various issues, helping equip the body on those issues, and then mobilize the body to go and serve through the partners that roll up under them. So nice. That's what I do. I love it. Well, welcome to the Equipping Podcast. Hey, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then last but definitely not least, we got Curtis Anderson, who just finished his institute year here at Watermark. And Curtis, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Originally from West Texas and... My dad was a Baptist minister, so grew up in a mainly black evangelical church and came from that perspective and then life hit and began to see different perspectives and all of that. And I went to finish, I played football at A&M Commerce. This is where I met my wife and my wife is from Dallas Oak Cliff. 
And so just merging those two realities together, man, I've worked in uh, as a community liaison, juvenile probation officer, and just all different types of uh, positions throughout the city of Dallas. So I became very equipped through different struggles in Dallas and working in different entities and service entities. So I've just seen Dallas from a different perspective and how it serves the city. And so that taught me a lot. So here I am today. I love it, man. Well, for sure here at Watermark, and if you're not familiar with Watermark, our diversity, I would say really over the last, I don't know, five years or so has definitely grown. But I would say that the predominant demographic at Watermark is an affluent white evangelical. I think that's a fair assessment, probably more than fair assessment of our church. And so one of the things that obviously has been going on in our culture that has the volume in this has been turned up significantly over the last really three or four months, starting with Ahmad Arbery in Georgia, who was gunned down in the street by two white guys who were really just trying to do like vigilante justice, I guess. And then right on the tail of that, there was a woman named Brianna who was in an apartment with her boyfriend. Narcotics officers busted through the door and shot and killed her. And then we have this video in the uh, Central Park in New York City where this white woman who popularly uh, is known as Karen, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, Karen's sitting over here shaking her head. Um, It's not Karen Henson, I promise. But this white woman threatens this black gentleman by saying she's going to call the cops and tell them that an African-American male is threatening her physically, which was clearly not happening on the video. And then, of course, just last week, George Floyd in Minneapolis, a white officer put his knee on this guy's neck. And I actually just read a report today that said the autopsy said that he died from asphyxiation due to prolonged Mm. pressure on his neck. So pretty much everybody's seen this. I mean, kind of with the technology that we have where we can videotape this stuff happening, the volume has been turned up. And I think when we come to this as believers, then our own context that we have been formed in shapes the lens that we view these things through. And being more of an affluent white community, it can be really easy for us to either say, okay, yeah, that's really sad, which in the circles that I've run in, That's definitely probably the most common comment that I've gotten anyway is, man, that's really tragic. It's really sad, but not really understand the issue and definitely not really understand it from a perspective of someone of color or from a minority position. Or we can also just say, hey, you know what? I like, I think some change needs to be done there, but maybe it's like somebody else's responsibility and maybe I'm too comfortable. Like, I don't really want people to come in and like rock the boat too much, like a little bit to like ease my conscience, but I don't really want to do what Jesus has really called me to do, which is to promote and seek unity and cultivate environments where people can heal. Or we just straight up ignore it. It's like, you know what? That's noise. It's getting in the way. I'm going to turn it down. And I would say all of those tendencies by Caucasian Christians in America and really all over the world, doesn't really matter where you are, none of those tendencies that face a lot of white evangelicals, none of those things are actually Christian. 
And so if we're going to follow Jesus, then we have to follow him wherever he leads. And I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is doing something in his church right now. And so we have to follow. And so I think probably for this podcast, I think we need to listen and we need to listen, but not listen in a way where we're trying to explain away what's being said mentally. I mean, I'm talking about actually like listen to sit with to empathize, to be changed by the experience and the perspective of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I'm going to toss it out there to all three of you and just hear what you have to say. And we really do want to listen. Mm. Yeah, I think with issues like this, something that's always helpful to ask is what would you like us to know that you don't think that we know? Well, from the perspective I'm thinking of, which I think is important that as whites get more involved in struggles like this, that they have the right primary motivation. Mm. And from what I'm seeing now propagated by mass media and other sources is like, Hey, guilt should be your main motivation. Mm. And I I am so against that. The whole, Hey, I feel guilty. Therefore I'm going to step up and say something. Mm. Guilt will cause you to do just enough. But love, particularly the love of Jesus Christ, will compel you to do more than enough. And it will have you walking two miles when somebody asks you to walk one mile with them. Mm. So I always try to free my brothers and sisters who are Caucasian from white guilt and say, hey, don't feel guilty. And even if you do feel guilty, hey, repent and then come support your brother and sister in Christ who's a different uh, culture than you in love and come with us and serve with us that way, not motivated from guilt. So. I love my sisters and brothers in Christ who are from a different culture and I have more in common with them than the people who look just like me. But at the same time, I want to care for them well also and say, hey, don't carry that burden of guilt. That's not your fault. Come walk with me and support me in love and let's walk forward and move towards justice together. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the one I would like uh, the church who are mostly Caucasians to know, like, hey, love needs to be, the love of Christ compels us. Mm. Not the burden of guilt. That's so good, man. Mm. Honestly, he took mine. (laughs) (laughs) Say say it your way. Say it your way. I mean, I would have gone with the word. I mean, it is guilt, but I would have gone with shame. Um, So having recently kind of been freed from shame in, in different ways in my own life, I know how, I mean, you just get in your head and you can't get out. And it's honestly a very selfish place because it, it does not allow you to see past yourself, it doesn't allow you to look up and go, ah, the Lord is calling me to do something else. But you kind of just kind of internally think about yourself and it puts a lens over conversations you have or the way that you perceive the actions of other people, et cetera, to where it's, it paralyzes you and you aren't then contributing to the body by any means Mm -hmm. because you are putting a light over your own gifts. Like if you're like shining like a little flame as we all are as believers and you're just kind of like completely muting that flame because you are unable to engage in what the Lord calls us to. And he calls us to love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And that's honestly all this conversation is. It's like he calls us to love our neighbor and the ability for us to do that hinges on the Imago Dei and our ability to see people the way that the Lord sees all of us and then, you know, put to death your sin so that you can go love your neighbor. Like that's Mm -hmm. what this whole conversation is. And so shame will not allow you to do that. And it is 
just a place where Satan is able to just tell you lie after lie after lie, and you're more prone to believe every single one of those lies about who he says you are. Mm. <laughs> and it's mm. um, it's not a good place to be. Yeah. You know what's interesting about false motivators for action? I mean, uh, you guys talked about a couple of them here, guilt and shame. I mean, those are really powerful motivators, right? But they're just totally insufficient to actually carry along any kind of like lasting substantive change. Another one that people have is a savior complex. All right, yeah, there's a problem over here. I'm going to run to it. And here I am, save the day, you know, which in a lot of cases where there's like an immediate need, that can be a really strong temptation. Another one too is just anger or emotion. A buzzword in our culture today is the word solidarity. You know, I'm going to stand in solidarity. And a lot of times that's driven by an anger over an injustice or something like that. And it's really easy for us, and by us, I mean white evangelicals, it's really easy for us right now when the noise is turned up really loud, it's really easy for us to say, we're with you, let's go, you know, let's do this. But time and time again, when the volume gets turned down, Mm. there typically is a, there's a retreat back into a status quo. And what I love about what you said, Stedman, is you're like, you just, yeah, you nailed it right on the head where you're like, hey, if your motivation is anything other than the love of Christ, then it's totally insufficient. And so I think like we've talked a lot on this podcast and a bunch of different episodes on the thing that drives us is the love of Christ. Mm. And when, when the love of Christ is driving you, then a big public moment that everybody's looking at, you can step into that because you've been stepping into it every single day, (laughs) having conversations that are actually addressing the issue, going into places that other people don't want to go because you're being driven by the love of God. And uh, that's such a critical, I mean, it's so central to this whole thing. Well, and calling these things out is not to condemn people, but just to say, hey, if you recognize and that's that in yourself, like, Take that to Jesus. Mm-hmm. He can use somebody who's broken. And so it's so helpful to point those things out and say, hey, don't be driven by this. Mm-hmm. Curtis, is there anything that you would like us to know? Yeah, I think that Elizabeth and Stedman said is so true, you know, guilt and shame. And I love the last part when Elizabeth was talking about the Imago Day. And I think that times in our culture, people fight for their Imago Day from different perspectives. I think that there are some of us, you know, even in our culture, that could easily graft into their mindset, into the worldview of a superiority complex that the culture kind of instills, right? And then there's the cultural poisons of many people having an inferiority complex. And I always want my white brothers always to know and to understand that there was inferiority complexes put into a lot of people of color. And so even when I come to the Bible and I, you know, exegete the scriptures, I'm still dealing with an inferiority complex because of what has been poisoned to me in the culture. Mm -hmm. And I think Romans 12 And two, always constantly reminds us as Paul, you know, starts talking about all the imperatives of the gospel as he's displayed it. Uh, You know, you can tell how this came out of the Institute. But uh, (laughs) Don't be ashamed. Shout out to Romans. It's all you can think about for a year. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I can go Romans 1 through 16 with me. No, I'm going to chill. I'm going to chill. But, but, man, you know, Paul starts, I mean, if you look at the context, it's Jew and Gentiles, and they all have different worldviews. And it's like, you need to come in here and understand that in order for all of this to work, like we got to be about 
uh, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that means that if you don't actively engage in differences through the Christian lens and through a Christian worldview and the gospel, we're going to get conformed by the culture. Mm -hmm. And the culture is going to have more of an influence on us. And I always tell people, when you're building and you're making a cake, if you have the best ingredients and the best oven and the right heat, if you don't have sugar in that cake, the cake is going to be incomplete. And so I like, I think that everybody as a Christian needs to come with different flavor, right? But you can't bake the cake and finish it and then come back and say, hey, man, let me put some sugar on top of this cake after mm. it's done. I think that that's the difference between reactivity and proactivity. Reactivity, you kind of see what it is. Proactivity, there is going to be some you know, some face steps, you're not going to be able to see it, but we got to do this because this is the ingredients that I bring and like, let's make this cake work, you know, so we can sit down, chop it up and eat that thing good. But it ain't going to happen until we as Christians understand that we're in the body of Christ. You're the arm. I may be a leg, but let's move. And we need each other and nobody's better. And that's the thing that we have to fight for, you know, because when you look at like, even in the news and all of these things that are going on in the riots, I mean, you got people from all different I mean, it's multi-ethnic. Yep. You know, when I'm looking at it and I'm like, we need to be the ones in the church. Whatever barriers that we have here, we need to sit at the table and keep on through love. Like you said earlier, love is intense, man. Like, like love will keep you there. If you were told to go a mile, love Amen. will make you go five. And if we believe in that love, Amen. that biblical agape that God gave us, that we're gifted with, that means we're going to sit, we're going to argue, we're going to have hard conversations, mm -hmm. but we're going to stay there because we love each yep. other yep. and we're not there for our yep. own intuition. Yeah. Love stays. Yes. Yep. Love can absorb the full force of whatever it is and look back at the person and say, I'm not going anywhere. Because it endures all things. Yeah. Love endures all things. There you go. Stedman said it better than yeah. I. <laughs> and then also just this entire conversation and everything you just said, Curtis, and the the way that we love each other is, I mean, the gospel speaks to humility, 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 mm. humility. It's like mm -hmm. if I look at Romans 12, the second mm -hmm. half of it, yeah. where it talks about loving one another, really what I see is a ton of things that help me, help my heart, not y'all's, but like me see past your faults yep. and your sin so that I can move toward you even if your blocker's up and my nature, my sin nature should want to punch you in the face. Mm -hmm. But instead, love compels me to move toward you even if you've hurt my feelings. Yep. Yep. And that's what I'm seeing. And I would like to add something to what Kurt said. And I think you were making a good point when you talked about different flavors. I think you're going towards the point of uniformity versus unity which a lot of churches may have those words and words matter and you have to define them and uniformity is, Hey, everybody looks the same and unity is everybody doesn't look the same, but we're together. Yeah. We're united in belief. That's good. I honestly think this is what the next big revival is going to come out of from a church that stands up in the midst of a, a generation that has found every distinction to divide itself and say, Hey, we're not going to divide because we're united in Christ. And they're going to see how good works we have Lord and our God who's in heaven. And the church has always been a beacon of what it should look like to have unity. Like what the, the commandment Jesus gives us in John 13, 34 and 35, it says, by this they will know you that you love one another. And I like that Greek word. It denotes that there's going to be differences, yep. but we're still united. That we're not going to look like a fraternity or sorority, but we're still going to love one another despite our differences. Because here there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no Gentile, there's no slave. All united in Christ is all. So I love that you brought that up, and I think it hits on the point where we have to determine, hey, are we headed towards unity or uniformity? Can mm -hmm. we empower people coming for, from their 
specific cultural instances to go and make disciples of all nations? And are we doing that? Or is it more like, hey, we're trying to make you look like us and have our flavor rather than empowering you uh, to do what God has called you to do despite what culture, what ethnicity marks you? So I think that's a great point, Curtis. I would even say, Stedman, thank you for that. It also shows that it's easy for people to assimilate into certain things without ever actually even talking about it. And, you know, Ephesians 4 and 3 tells us to be eager to maintain unity. And I think that that eagerness, you know, maybe you may know what that means in the Greek, but I think of it as what it means in the Greek is eager, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so man, we just got to be eager about that. And I think that the hurtful thing for me, and I don't want to change the flow of the conversation, but the hurtful thing is whenever... I'm looking and I'm hearing us saying, man, let's make disciples of all nations. And I feel like sometimes evangelicals lead with, let's convert people of all nations. It's like, no, lead out with discipleship because there's so many people. I mean, if you look on the news, there are so many people out here that is waiting to be discipled. But you have to be able to engage in those contexts. But what's hurtful is whenever I even hear conservative evangelicals, which I feel like I'm biblically conservative myself. But, man, when you hear people on Fox News and places like that, that's kind of like the answers for certain people. I mean, sometimes, man, they sound just like they're on Fox News. But it's like as Christians, if I'm sitting up here with Nathan and he's my boy and we're talking and then I see him at, a, you know, something in the culture, we have to be able to ask each other these questions, man, and hold each other accountable on all streams. And that means even culture as well. Yeah. So that's kind of like, hey, what do you feel like we need to know that we don't necessarily know now? I think uh, I'll ask it just changing up one word. Like, what do we need to feel that we don't feel? Mm. That is, that's good. Gosh, that question just made my, like, heart hurt <laughs> mm. a little. Um, empathy is really important. Mm. And, yeah, and you can't have empathy without relationship. And you can't have a relationship unless you move toward people. And I think in a lot of cases, I think people genuinely see all of the hurt and don't know how to engage. And so therefore are not moving toward people, which breaks my heart because there's just so much missed opportunity for empathy. So it's like you see it. And I think that people are feeling sympathy, but they can't feel empathy if they aren't actually talking to people while they're hurting. Mm to understand what we're feeling. It's just a big miss. And so just to talk about what we're feeling, it's, I almost want to just like kick it off to y'all specifically, like to black men, because like me, even as a black woman, cannot fathom what y'all actually go through. Because I mean, the threat is more on your lives than mine. And then Curtis is a dad. And I can't fathom raising a kid and having to talk about these things with your child um, when these things happen. Well, I I would say, Elizabeth, that black women from where I'm from has, you know, there's a a underrepresentation of women, period, in our culture. And they've contributed so much. And I think that sometimes in our culture, they just forgot about. And then I think that it becomes a double whammy. I grew up in a house in church. Like if we didn't have, we wouldn't have had a church if it wouldn't have been for the strong women that came from my context. So even though they perceived danger, there's been a lot of women. I mean, it's it's they're misrepresented. So, but coming from a male perspective, Elizabeth, I would say, thank you for that. 
empathy and sympathy. I think that when you are going on in a vehicle of sympathy, I think that the speed of change is slower than somebody with empathy. I'm going to go back real quickly. You know, I have some fame in the game a little bit now. You know, I was around in high school during the 1992 L.A. riots, and I got in trouble in high school because my history teacher, I ain't going to say his name, he was a great guy. I think he was a deacon at the First Baptist Church and all that, but he said in our class that now, you know, I've seen these riots come forward now. You know, I'm, you know, I'm the old cat in the room now. So in the 92 riots, the, I think 91 or 92, in, the, in those L.A. riots, Rodney King was beat. He was hit by the police 53 times. And I had been hearing about police brutality in South Central. You know, the rap music was saying it. It was like handwritten on the walls in our culture. And a lot of people was like, man, you know, I'm not listening to those thugs. And they, you know, put you know, lyrics, parent, parental advisory on all of this. I mean, it was gangster rap. It was the form of gangster rap in the 80s. And it was like nobody really liked it. They said things about it in the majority culture, but there was a lot of their kids listening to it. A lot of my friends' parents probably told them, y'all better not be listening to it, my white brothers and sisters. But, you know, behind closed doors, they was jamming with me. But we was in class, and he said a very insensitive comment. He was like, hey, man, when you're driving recklessly and you're running from the police, you get what comes. And then I stood up and I said, what do you mean by that? I'm like, man, that's totally disrespectful. They've been talking about police brutality in the cities for a long time. And how could you justify he was defenseless? He didn't have anything. But if you see the videotapes, I mean, it was pretty horrific. Mm. And those officers got off. Yep. And that was a hard, and I had to live in that reality. And sometimes if I were to ask the question, I want somebody to feel what I feel. Man, I've been to a lot of white evangelical churches and I'm like, I may be the only black guy. And I'm like, I want you to know how this feels sometimes. Mm -hmm. And without a gospel and Christian answer, I used to say, I want you to know what it feels like to be in first grade and nobody around you looks like you. And some kids come up to you and tell you about your hair or your skin color. Or if you're in the fifth grade and your baseball team wins. I want somebody to know how it feels when somebody out of the audience gives you the N-word and says insensitive things or to be walking to the store and some rowdy person would just yell out, get out of here and stuff like that. Sometimes I would, you know, I'm kind of like, man, let me give you a pill so you can feel this. And I want you to feel what I feel and go through what I went through. But the gospel healed me and it helped me out with my own inward bitterness. But there was a part of me even years, and I think that there's a lot of people that are, you know, have not been healed by the trauma that they're going through. A lot of times their end result is I want you to go through and be through what I've went through. And I don't think that that's the answer either. Mm, yeah. But to kind of culminate into the question that we ask, it kind of feels like that. In the fear, like with my son, you know, him getting pulled over, he was in the, the car with somebody and the officers asked them. The girl said she's never had anybody to ever ask her about weapons. But the officer said, do y'all have any weapons in the car? And she was like, why would we have weapons in the car? I've never been asked that before. And my son's just sitting there. So I have no choice but to tell him what he needs to do when he's driving, hands on the steering wheel, and be the most studious person that you can be because of the fear of the culture. Mm -hmm. What about you, Stedman? Uh, I would just echo what Liz said with empathy. I think uh, I know that people don't, this is kind of the first rule of leadership, people don't care what you know until they know what you care. And I think if you're empathetic with somebody, it shows that you actually care about them. Now, a lot of people can go towards outrage about a specific incident, but that shows that you care more about the incident than the plight of what we're going through. So just to echo Liz, I think empathy is the biggest thing that you move towards people on love and care. And you let them know that, hey, I love and care for you, despite if there's racism or not racism going on, let's do life together and not let me move towards you just because of this situation. 
it helps when you have people there all the time because you start to question, hey, is this person just moving towards me just to stroke their conscience or do they actually really care about me? Well, that's the interesting thing, man, about false motivators for action is the irony of it is when you're operating out of guilt and shame or anger or a savior complex, then you actually begin to use the situation and the people involved in the situation to appease your own conscience. Instead of actually moving towards someone, those false motivators can act as a deterrent from actual relational engagement because you're just trying to smooth over something that's uncomfortable for you, which is why getting back to the whole love as motivator, love is the thing that will sit in the discomfort and will actually lament with people and yeah. will and can absorb anger and frustration and hurt and pain. And so I'd love to hear more from you guys. Just one of the conversations that we've had recently, Elizabeth, with just some people here at Watermark. And it was interesting because you used a statement a minute ago talking to Curtis where you said, hey, I'm going to push it over to you guys because the threat for you is more real or something like that. And I don't know if you what you thought, Karen, but as soon as you said that word. Felt heavy. Yeah, it felt heavy. And it also felt foreign to me. Yeah. Hmm. Like I was like, what threat? As a white male, I don't go throughout my day wondering some of the th same things that you guys have to think about. Help put your white brother or sister in your shoes. What is that like? What do we need to know in regard to that? so that we're not just walking around blind, running into the daggone wall. Well, and I think it, that would help us empathize because even as we're talking through some of these things, I'm thinking, I want to do that and I want to do that well, but I am always held back by the fact that you have experienced so much hurt and I don't want to rub salt in the wound. And so I think even understanding like, hey, this is what I've walked through or this is what a day feels like helps me to be able to empathize with you well. Can I expound on the word threat real quick? Sure. I think it's interesting uh, that you said that, but I would say, so, I mean, when I'm like unpacking this with a friend, with a white friend specifically, and you just kind of hear about what they're taught, so like in different groups that I've led or, or whatnot, you, you hear a lot, the fear that was taught to them, fear black people, fear black men specifically. And so you'll hear a lot, I mean, to give specific examples, like, to cross the street if you've got a black guy like walking across the street. I mean, walking towards you on the same sidewalk or something like that. And it's not necessarily like cross the street because a man's coming at you, but it's like a black man specifically. And so you see that instilled in a lot of my white friends, which is interesting because, <laughs> because ironically, it is when I say the word threat, like a black man is threatening to a white person, yet... On the other side of it, you've got, I mean, black people in general that look at, sure, media, but also, also, like, let's put media aside. We've got what we're learning, what I learned. I mean, I'm listening to my grandparents, like my parents, and then my grandparents who have, my, and my grandparents have their grandparents' perspective, and my grandparents' grandparents were slaves, not that far off. Mm -hmm. And then that's what they heard. That's also instilled in me mm. and then just perpetuated by the media, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I see the media and, like, I see, you know, pictures and, like, I'm not watching videos. That would – I can't watch a video of somebody 
dying. It's like the threat is actually should be white people. It's over the course of 400 years. It's like it's fascinating that I hear a lot like be afraid of the black guy when it's Mm. in reality, like in all like factual reality history. history, It's the other way around. And Mm -hmm. so it's it's ironic that that's the the reality and the tension that we're feeling between two different ethnic groups. Yeah. I like what Elizabeth just said, and thank you for that. I thought that was just phenomenal. When we talk about these situations, it's always good to talk about the history, you know, the historical ramifications that we don't talk about, and then our present realities, and then a future hope, right? Like, I think that those should be constantly the grafting points of our conversations. Look at what historically has happened. Like, if, I mean, even like in some of the things that's been passed down from my parents, you know, my parents grew up in a segregated culture. So they had a different worldview. And then here I come in. That's the difference. If you ever notice in black culture, there's a difference between the blues and the jazz culture than the hip hop culture. Because, you know, when integration came, rap came. And so in the 70s, you have the involvement of rap. But my parents hated rap. So me living in that house, it was very, very hard. But you look at the fear that was passed down to them from their parents, and I was given that fear coming into an integrated culture. Mm -hmm. Those are still realities. Even as I pick up my Bible and I read it, there have been passed down worldviews that I have that is based on fear. Like most people in my house or at a family reunion, hardly anybody could swim. You know, you used to hear that phobia. A lot of black people can't swim. I don't know if that's true from everybody, but from my perspective, most people couldn't swim. And when I was reading a book one time, it was talking about in slavery how they was taught to fear the water, to fear the river mm-hmm. because of, you know, being able to escape. Mm-hmm. And maybe that was a reality that was passed down, but I knew a lot of people couldn't swim. Those are realities. Those are fears. And I talked to a few people when we had our institute, when we went off in the country. There's just this fear in me, like sometimes when I see a rebel flag way out of ways in Dallas, you know, I was telling a lot of my friends like, man, you know, I get nervous out here coming into the woods, man, because, you know, that rebel flag and. All of those things I see, and some of them was like, man, I didn't even see that. And I'm like, man, that's what I look for every time I go far in the country. But that, to me, is a threat, you know what I'm saying, sometimes. I try to make it a point when I'm encouraging, uh, even talking to black men about the situation, that, hey, bro, fear is a religion of hell. I understand that when there's a legitimate threat, but the Bible tells us 365 times, hey, do not fear. Because mm-hmm. I've, I've found that fear leads to bitterness, bitterness leads to hatred, and hatred eventually leads to retaliation. And this is what we're seeing coming right now, where it's like it's established fear. Now we've gotten bitter. Now we've gotten hatred. Now we have to retaliate in violence. And that just leads to suffering for everybody. There is an understanding that I have to conduct myself with wisdom, though. And I think everybody would agree with, hey, you have to conduct yourself with wisdom. It just looks a little bit different for black men. As in, when I was on staff at Watermark and a part of the fellowship, and we went uh, to Bayonne, Texas, and... um, we were coming back from the retreat we had as a staff and just walking into different places. And um, mm. some people want to stop this kind of backwoods barbecue place. <laughs> and I'm thinking in my head, like, hold on, dude. Like, okay, I need to be on high alert right now. Not fear running through my mind. It's like, hey, but I just need to have my, I need to have a, as they say in missionary training, the active awareness of what's going on, mm. who's in the barbecue shop. Is there a black dude? Now, don't get me wrong, bro. A black dude walked out as they were walking in and they gave me so much peace. I was like, okay. <laughs> 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 uh, he looked healthy, too. He looked healthy. <laughs> I was like, they feel tired with black people around here, so that gives me peace. 
And the fact that they don't have a rebel flag, even though growing up in Georgia in the South and used to seeing it, yeah. that's not like a big check mark of fear to me because I'm kind of used to it and kind of being desensitized. But I understand, like, okay, if there's a rebel flag in Georgia, okay, that's what in Georgia. If there's a rebel flag in like Colorado, it's like, hold on, these people up or something. Like, you ain't nowhere near the Confederacy, <laughs> dog, and you just wore the rebel flag out here. Uh, like, that's, 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 that's so cute to that. Like you feel that way. Yeah. I know you do. Yeah. Hey, could you give us the definition of what dog means? <laughs> Is there a W in you know, it? No, you're not. <laughs> yeah. uh, term of endearment. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I like that. Yep. So, yeah, I don't, for myself and for me encouraging other African-Americans or I would say, Hey, don't fear, but you need to be wise in the way you conduct yourself. Even in Branson, I'm weary of, Hey, I was wearing a black hoodie one night coming home, uh, walking across the upper field at K one. And I'm like, I thought about Trayvon Martin in that instance. I'm like, what if somebody mistakes me for something that I am not? And I had no control in the situation. Before people have talked to me and got to know my story, I've even been, hey, we had this preconceived notion of you before we got to talk to you because you're African-American and tall. And it's like, okay, I understand that. Some form, some fashion, we all do that to people as far as like we've been shaped and molded by the culture. So we have a, a kind of understanding of maybe what we expect of a person before we meet them, which is not right at all, but it's a part of living in a culture that you're going to come into contact with. And a part of that is being intersected by the word of God and saying, hey, let me drop those biases and come to find out and love this brother and share the gospel with him. So yeah, there is that part of me that I always want to encourage people, don't fear, but there needs to be a level of wisdom and a kind of understanding of the times so you can best navigate what's going on today. So. Mm, that's good. Elizabeth, we, we've just talked recently about how since kind of all this stuff has been going down, your your phone's been blowing up, <laughs> figurative speaking. But just tell us, like, you've had a lot of well-intended friends and coworkers reaching out. You know, I'm sure probably you guys have had a similar experience. How have you handled those conversations? And what has been helpful about them and what has not been helpful Yes, my phone hasn't blown up. Phone, email. Oh, my goodness. You do vacation from oh, your phone. May, I, I'm, I'm intentionally putting it away yeah, that's um, when I need to. But I know that I am unique and that these, I mean, these conversations genuinely give me so much. I love it. Like, here for it. Here for it. I think it's so fun. As hard as the conversation, it does not take away how, from how difficult, you know, the subject matter is and just the reality of even having to have these conversations, but it is a joy to get to point people like I'm just sharing the gospel over and over and over and over. And it's fun because it's like, guys, this is so simple. It's so basic. Like we got this, like it needs to be all of us. And we've got this because we've got the Bible, like all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training up in righteousness. Like that's all the answers are in this Bible. That's it. And so what is helpful is that in those conversations, I know that people have the right heart because they're coming and they're seeking to understand. So that's great. And just willing to move forward. Like, I think the fact that people are after the conversation willing to move forward and go, okay, yeah, I got this. Like, you're right. I do have this. It is just the Bible. It's, it's, it's scripture. And I know exactly how to care for someone because I've, I care for people all the time. <laughs> like, I know exactly what to do. 
Um, and I feel like it helps move people out of paralysis. So just coming with a heart of humility is helpful. And they're already doing it. I mean, that's why they're reaching out. And I love that. Um, <laughs> what's not helpful? Genuinely, I think what's not helpful is not reaching out. Like, I think the not reaching out thing is difficult for everybody. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier today, but it's painful to watch people not engage or to kind of half-ass it where they're just like, I'm going to post on social media. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I have literally no idea who's posted on social and who hasn't. In fact, I feel like my like white friends are like policing each other on the heart behind posting on social media. It's like I literally have not brought it up. But people are like, well, I see people posting. And so then I feel like I've got to post it. I'm like, I haven't thought about it. Mm. I don't care. I cannot think of one human being in this moment who has posted on social or not. I can tell you who's reached out to me. And who's, like, cared for me by reaching out and saying, I'm praying for you. You know what I mean? Yep. And so I think what's not helpful is thinking that you can just, like, post and— Yeah, you're almost like a social media, like, warrior for justice. Totally. Which is a false sense of advocacy, at least on some level. I mean, to be thoughtful and to post something, all right, great, I'm not knocking that. But if all you're doing is just posting something, but you're not actually relationally engaging with right. someone, then— but something's off. And it goes there. back to what your motivation yeah, is. Yeah, totally. Like, what totally. is it about it? Hey, are you appeasing your guilty conscience by doing this so you can sleep better at night? Yeah. And also what's not helpful is, oh, this is, I mean, I will die on this hill as many times as I need to. Y'all, go to the Bible first. Go to the Bible first. There are so many different, I mean, everything's on social media these days, like just, I mean, opinions and people that have podcasts and books and you know, using their Instagram handle to bring an awareness and to for justice and all these things. And there's space for those things. But because the church has historically not spoken up mm. about this specific issue about loving people of color well, the church is, is silent. And therefore, everybody that is speaking about this is secular. Mm. Or it's a believer and they are compromised in a lot of ways. And where they've gotten themselves frustrated by the lack of movement and the lack of the church stepping up to where they then are a couple degrees off from the gospel, which is not the gospel at all. Yeah. Yeah. And so then they are moving more toward like the seeking the justice thing. And when I say seeking justice, I mean, they are just trying to have they are trying to get people's circumstances changed and not focused on the heart change. Mm. And so, I mean, it's like before you follow a bunch of people, please read your Bible, because at the end of the day, when you're asking me like what you're supposed to do next or like how am I supposed to move forward or like how do I engage in this? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Like mm -hmm. I don't know. He's given us different gifts. Going back to Romans 12, he's given us different gifts and we are all different parts of the body and we all have something to bring to the table. And so I have no idea how he wants to use you. I don't know. For me, it happens to be a little bit louder and I, for the life of me, can't figure out why. <laughs> But that's what he's asking me to do. And he's going to ask you to do something completely different. So go to scripture and figure out what sin is keeping you from loving your neighbor. Mm. Good. I and mean, then follow Jesus. Please follow Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the he only will, answer. He will, he, will, he will tell you what to do. Abide. Abide, abide, abide. <laughs> well, I think, like you said, it's so simple. You're preaching the gospel over and over and over again. And so to somebody who's saying, like, I don't know what to do. I'm not equipped. You're saying... You have the Holy Spirit. Like, you're, help. What? you're as equipped as I am. Like yeah. there's truth in front of you that you can use to share and encourage and love on people. And 
And to just be able to step back from this conversation and say, oh, I do have the spirit. I do have God's word. I do have people around me who can help me engage in these conversations well. I think that's what people just need to be reminded of. You have everything you you need. And I think that there has been so many systemic things put in place that it keeps us from each other. And then it also makes people take it as an individualistic thing. Like when we're Mm -hmm. sitting down and we're having a conversation, I tell them, don't take this individually like you did it because they're always saying, you know, used to be the old slang word coming from others was like, well, I'm not racist. I didn't do anything. And it's like, man, I'm not blaming you. So, you know, don't lead out with guilt and shame, but know that there are some systemic things that has happened that makes us even think from each other differently. I think about Romans 1, verses 11. And you're you know, quoting Paul, Romans a lot, right? Yeah, I am, man. I think I learned it from Blake Holmes a little bit, man. Shout out. When it says, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I think whenever I'm having conversations with my brothers that may be chilling on the north side of Jerusalem and I'm in South Antioch, I think that when we have a conversation and we're talking, you know, that spiritual gift doesn't mean you being a a teacher like Apollos. It may just mean that you just showing me hospitality or just you just coming alongside, just being an active listener without any answers and just listening to my hurt and the, the guilt and the things that I'm feeling with the cultural poisons. But I think that when you take a position of like, when I come here, we're going to mutually help each other out. It's going to go both ends. It's not, you know, I'm not going to come in with all the answers because I can exegete the scripture. I'm coming in with the posture of humility, washing feet like Jesus in this situation that I feel like is hurting my brother. Mm. I'm going to weep with those who weep. I'm going to mourn with those who mourn. And in order to know what that weeping feels like, if you're from another side of the town, come in and sit down. And smell like the sheep, you know, to feel what that feels like. You know, and I think about even in um, Psalms where it talks about you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I just love the aspect of the table. What if the Christian church had a table for a George Zimmerman and a Trayvon Martin to sit at? What if they knew about each other? And I feel like with the gospel, with heart change, we have to create spaces for these hard conversations to happen with the leading out of the gospel. But, you know, I tell a lot of my friends when I'm in South Dallas in the barbershop, because Jesus has been distorted, the view of who Jesus is. And I think Nathan talked about that in class. A lot of people in South Dallas and in a lot of those places that I work, they think of Christianity as the white man's religion. They think of Jesus Christ as some blonde haired Nordic guy. You know, guy. Rock, yeah, that rocks out with Vikings. You know what I'm saying? But, you know. <laughs> What a <laughs> I know that might get edited, but <laughs> <What a vision. laughs> no, I'm definitely leaving keep that it in. in. Yeah. <laughs> so when I go down there, I talk to them. I just have a relationship with them and I hear them and I conversate with them. But it's cultural apologetics, man. It's like my instance is to show you that Jesus Christ is God of this world in the distorted view that you've been given. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lead out with that when I first talk to you. I'm just going to talk to you as a man. Then I'm going to give you a worldview that I believe in God then I'm going to show you that Jesus is God. But I'm not going to lead out with that because I know their worldview is different from mine. But that shows you that there are different levels of the way that the people present the gospel, but the gospel is the gospel. I think we all have different perspectives. But again, going back to what I just said, how can we create a table? And so it's just good for my white brothers and sisters to know that or people you know, from the majority culture context. But I also lastly would say we was in the Institute class and I was feeling hurt. Like when I was driving through Dallas, we had an institute class on Martin Luther King Day. 
And I was feeling heavy because, you know, I like to jam out on MLK Boulevard on Martin Luther King Day, man, and just trip out on the people and just have a good time. I mean, it's like the best community event for me. Well, I wasn't able to come, and, man, my heart was heavy. And then Nathan was like, hey, man, before we start class, let's talk about MLK and let's talk about all those things. And it really, really made me feel good. And, you know, I said some things. But one of the things that hurt me a little bit, and it's silence, man, like, don't be silent. Mm -hmm. Speak up and don't let guilt and shame keep you separated from us having a conversation. Speak up. And so that's what I told a lot of them in the class, like, hey, man, y'all sitting here not saying nothing is not helping me in this moment because your brother's hurting. So come weep with me, come mourn with me and show me that you care, regardless if you sound awkward or not. I just want them to have a space to know Talk it out. Say it loud and proud of what you feel and how you feel, and let's talk it out. Yeah. Let's put a ring on and stop dating. Even mm-hmm. if it's a disagreement. Yeah. Even if I'm it's like, a- we're going to disagree, and that's okay. I mean, we've got Matthew 18 and biblical conflict resolution should a disagreement occur and it escalate. Like, that's okay. Right. But we have to come to the table and we can't be afraid to talk to each other because that's the other thing is that the thing that I see in all of these conversations, specifically black people will, you know, post things or just share feelings or whatever. And a lot of it sometimes is like, yes, great. You're, you're not, you're outpouring your heart, but then the teaching or the advice or whatever is not biblical. And you've got evangelicals that are white specifically that are in total agreement with it. And it's like, (laughs) you have the Bible. If it's not right, call it out. Don't Mm -hmm. be afraid in your fear and in your shame and your guilt to not speak truth back to your brother or sister if they're off. Well, and the, the fear is a cycle. It works both ways. You have systemic fear from a minority culture that has been poisoned by narratives that are not Christian at all. Mm -hmm. But then also the majority culture has also been living in a narrative where when they see certain injustices like abortion or something like that, it's socially acceptable to protest and march for life and all of those things are good. Like, yes, I've been in those crowds. And are right and good. But then there are other injustices that are less socially acceptable to protest if you're in a majority culture because of the narrative. Mm. And it goes to show as well how deeply entrenched Mm. a lot of our identity is in our political stances and the two-party system. And it's it's just – it's a complex deal. And I think in the midst of that environment, however, you have ambassadors of reconciliation who are – and dwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit to push forward a new way of conversing, a new way of listening, a new way of empathizing, Hmm. a new way of loving, right? To set an example for this broader culture to go, no, this is the way that beings created in the image of God are to relate to one another. Mm -hmm. And that means, dadgummit, even if it's unpopular, Mm -hmm. when I see injustice— I call it injustice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think about, hmm, how is this going to play politically? Hmm, how's this going to play culturally? Hmm, how's this going to whatever? And then like shape my argument around something so that I can be politically correct in whatever way I am. I'm like, no, it's unjust. And that's why there's the two Hebrew words, Sadiq and Mizpat are righteousness and justice. In the Old Testament, those two terms are synonymous with one another. They're used interchangeably, Hmm. righteousness and justice. So it's not like there's this righteousness that can like outweigh justice Mm. or justice that outweighs righteousness. They're the same thing. 
Oh my gosh. All right. I'm on a soapbox now. All right. Hey, hey, Stedman, I want to push it over to you, man, because you wrote a a post right after Ahmaud Arbery stuff came out on the news when the video was released and all that kind of stuff. You said, hey, I think this is a, a biblical response to these types of situations and to promote the conversation between brothers and sisters of, of different skin color. So why, why don't you take a minute to kind of walk everybody through that? So when I, uh, when I thought about that, um, about what I was going to write, I didn't want to play judge and jury. And that's the, always the encouragement I give to other people. It's like, it's more of, I want you to shepherd my heart, not play judge and jury and just make a case for it and say, Hey, this is why it's wrong. Okay. I get it's wrong, but I want to know more uh, how to instruct people of how to deal with these types of situations and what truths we should hold on to in the midst of these types of situations. Cause apparently it looks like they got to keep on happening. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't do any good just to stand up on stage every time and say, Hey, he's guilty. Okay. He's not guilty. He's guilty. He's not guilty. Where there is some good in that it's more of, okay, let me shepherd my people's hearts. So they know when situations like this happen, how to respond and how to orient my heart around God's word and God's truth and not just based on feelings. So when I wrote that, I was like, okay, what are some truths that I hold on to that I find that in the Bible are just bursting through every page? Micah 6, 8 says, hey, bro, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice. And a lot of people want to stop the verse right there, to do justice. Like, oh, no, 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 wait, no, that, keep on reading, keep on right there. No, you love Love mercy mercy. also. And then you walk humbly with your God. Don't stop at that. Because I feel like you begin to the social justice warrior clinic. It's more like, hey, bro, do justice, bang. That's what the Bible says. No, no, no. Love mercy. Walk Mm -hmm. humbly with your God. So trying to walk humbly with my God, knowing that I do not have all the evidence presented. And say, hey, this is what I think. I could be wrong, though. And try to take that humble stance. And I can see how some people didn't necessarily agree with that. Uh, again, I'm not trying to play judge and jury. I'm not going to have that final call. But just some of the truths I said was I'm going to identify with being a believer. First and foremost, and there are two ditches on each side of the road. You can go to the ditch that says, hey, I'm all Christian and my culture doesn't matter. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you can go to the ditch that says, hey, my Christianity is only add-on to what my culture has taught me. That's wrong also. Yeah, good. It's like, no, I find my identity first and foremost in Christ, even though I am an African-American male who's grown up in black culture. Like, I, I have to. I have to stand there. So I'm going to, as Bodie Bauckham says, blood may be thicker than water, but the cross is stronger than both. Yep. So I am going to hang my head on the cross of Jesus Christ. Also, it's like my, the second one is my emotions are not God. Uh, feelings are real, but always reliable. And I feel, even if I feel outraged, that doesn't mean I act on that anger. It's like, I'm not going to give myself over to that. I still want to bring light to these things that continue to happen that are injustices or seem to be injustices, but do it in a God-glorifying way that people look at us and say, hey, those people are different. So the way they protest and the way they speak out, they give grace, mercy, but are firm and seek the God of justice to come down and just carry out justice. And it's like, that's, that's why I want, how I want people to remember me. Three, we live in a fallen world. We just live in a fallen world. I don't believe in systemic racism theory. I don't believe there are systems that have been designed as of now, right now. In the past, oh yeah, definitely. Right now, that have been designed to hold black people back. Now, let me say that with this. I believe there are people in systems that may be racist, but I just don't want to bank with a broad brushstroke and say, hey, that system, everybody in that system is racist. 
Again, want to walk humbly? I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, let's protest and speak out on it. I don't think we need a protest, but I don't necessarily agree. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Amen. No, I, I understand. And that's okay. And we can disagree. Yeah. The, the fourth one was Armada. He was a human being. Uh, we have to look at that. He was made in the image of God. He was a black man, but he is a human being also. And I want my heart to be pricked just as much as somebody else dies because uh, they're human. And just my last thought is uh, there's a God of grace and justice, and I want to pray for grace and justice to reign. So even with Ahmad Arbery's killers, I want to pray for their salvation. And I want to pray for Derek Chauvin's salvation also, that God will get them. And I can see that brother in heaven. We can celebrate with one another. The glory of our God and how he was saved and we were both saved. That would be absolutely awesome to see that brother in heaven. I would just do almost a backflip and then continue to glory in Jesus Christ. So I think I was uh, motivated to write that because of I want to orient my heart correctly when these things happen, not just feel the outrage of it happening always. So that's where my heart was. And what were those five? Just summarize them again. Yeah, I'm just a believer in Jesus Christ. My emotions are not God. We live in a fallen world. There's going to be fallen people. The system by nature is fallen because it's ran by fallen people. I'm our, our bear was a human, being in the image of God. And then there's a God of grace and justice. And I, I want to defer always to him and serve him. So. Yeah, that's good, man. I love it. I think about this too, Stedman. I, I think um, one more year, you know, 1921, they had the Tulsa riots, and I've been talking to a few friends of mine about that, and it's going to be 100 years, and it was, you know, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And next year, I'm going down, I'm rocking there. But anyway, man, that was like 100 years of something that happened in our culture. And I look at that, the point that I'm going to bring up is that if you look at 1920, 1930, this has been said by many people that the science of eugenics that came from Germany was uh, infiltrated into mm-hmm. the worldview of Americans. And if you look at 1920, you know, you had the Margaret Sanger, you had the Tuskegee syphilis. I mean, there were so many things that happened between 1920 and 1930. And if you look in 1776, when they started keeping up with the census of different ethnicities, the African-American population in the 1770s was at 19%, but most of us was the indentured servants of slaves. Well, in 1920, we had the lowest percentage of African-Americans in this culture. And I talked to a lot of people and we have conversations. I said, man, before we even start talking about the riots, this is what I always tell my friends. What percentage of African-Americans do you think live in America? And a lot of them, not all of them, some of them know, but a lot of them don't understand that. First of all, we're 13% in this culture. And if we're 13% in this culture, that means that we're a super minority that may not even be portrayed as it is on the media. When you look at the media, it makes it look like we may be 40%. But the point of what I'm making, if we believe Imago Day is true, and we believe that we're all created in the image of God and we are equal, then the question has to come to bear. If you only have 13% of the population, but you represent 60% in the penitentiary, or you represent the highest number of economic, low economic status, single moms, all that. If we believe that we're all created equal, then we have to know that there's been an invisible system. It's disproportionate. It is, very. And humans created systems and humans perpetuate the systems. And I'm not saying that we don't have the ability to vote. We do. But at the same time, you've got things like the three felony rule. After you get three felonies, you can no longer vote. I mean, there's a whole war on drugs that started in the 80s, right? And then if you've got people that are living predominantly in the same communities that can no longer vote for their own rights or for their own, the change in their own communities, because let's say they've gotten three felonies from selling drugs, which by the way, they probably didn't want to do in the first place. Mm. People need money to survive. 
and if there are no jobs around you and you have no ability to get to those jobs because you don't have a vehicle, I mean, there's just so many things that would cause people to to not be able to flourish. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is a systematic problem that specifically affects very specific races. I think when you say systemic racism, you clearly have to communicate. It has to be predicated at a race and not just a socioeconomic status. And I think we haven't made that distinction. Therefore, we think that, hey, if this affects the people living here, if they happen to be black, it's systemic racism. I feel that some people just throw the systemic racism card out there and not know what it means. And I think that's wrong. I think that is not drawing a circle around yourself, but playing the blame game. You have to understand that there are facts, that there are tragedies that have happened to black Americans with slavery, Jim Crow, Red Line, Liberty Test, KKK, lynching. Yes, all those are facts. But I never want to get black people to the point where they use that as an excuse not to be able to excel. I don't disagree. Yeah. When it starts to become an excuse, that's when I'm out. When you're not drawing the circle around yourself and changing everything in that circle and just saying, hey, it's systemic racism holding me down. It's the man. It's like, no, dude, we can all go look at somebody's life because we, I've been through regeneration where you can go through those 12 steps of somebody's life and look at their life and be like, dude, like, I don't think this is the man. I think you just have bad habits that are going to lead to failure. And now you're trying to put systemic racism or the man's trying to hold me down. I don't think the man's trying to hold you down. Now, again, I'm saying that under the umbrella, there are facts that have happened to black America. There are atrocities that should be repentant of. But at the same time, I never want anybody, if, I, if God blessed me with a wife and a son, or just the, the people I have uh, just the influence on, I want to say, hey, don't use that as an excuse not to excel and better yourself and enjoy and glorify God. Mm-hmm. By no means. So that, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, and I would agree that, yeah, there is history. There is so much history. I just don't want people to use that as an excuse. I don't disagree. You know, I used to hear about the conversations between Calvinists and dispensationalists, and a lot of times— it's the hyper-Calvinists that's arguing with the hyper-dispensationalists. And it's like, when you get them in the room, we really agree on a lot of things. There's a few variances that we don't agree on, but we're coming from the generalization language of hyperism, if that's a word. I made that up. <laughs> but either way, when you hear the hyper, it's kind of like they just feel like they're just detached from the emotions of what they're saying. You know, we live in a capitalistic society, and it's also hard to— to separate a racial ideology from a culture that's built on economics, socioeconomics. And so those things, they sort of ingrain themselves regardless. And so I don't want to westernize it and, you know, put individualistic terms to it and compartmentalize it. Like it all goes together and one doesn't blame each other on the other, but it's a reality. But I love what you said, because I'm from that, that context, like, man, the man's holding me down. Like, nah, brother, the man ain't holding you down. You're holding you down. Mm -hmm. And we need to be ambassadors for whatever we believe in and whatever it is out there. But there is this perceived reality. I know you've heard this before where there are people who lead out with the gospel, but they miss anything systemic. And they use the guy like the gospel is the answer to all of this. Yes, it is. But I think Nathan put that language really good in class about people who are so high strong on the word of God, which I believe it's very important. But how would you articulate that, Nathan? Yeah, well, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Like the gospel has legs. Yeah. And arms and hands. The gospel is intensely practical. If the gospel is only my sins are forgiven and I don't have to go to hell anymore, then that's such a reductionistic version of the actual thing that you're skewing it to the point where it's almost unrecognizable. 
is it true that we need our sins forgiven and that we will be in the kingdom of God if we place our faith in Jesus? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. However, and this was kind of my tie into all of this, is that, yeah, I mean, all of this stuff plays together. The systemic injustices that you've outlined, Curtis, from our past, which have created socioeconomic divides and economic disparity between people groups, generally speaking. Education systems are very different from one another. Opportunities are different from one another. But the gospel informs all of that. Amen. If it's just, okay, get your sins forgiven and now, you know, go to church and read your Bible, then, uh, okay, you're not wrong. But largely the failure of the church over the last 150 to 200 years is that we've abdicated our responsibility in all of those other sectors of life Mm -hmm. where the gospel is screaming out, no, there's a different way. There's a different way economically. There's a different way politically. There's a different way in policing. There's a different way. And oh, by the way, to bring this conversation totally full circle, that different way is love. Yeah. It's the love of God. It always is. It totally is. Look, when people love, then instead of pinning George Floyd on the asphalt and asphyxiating him, instead of that, then you seek to understand, you engage with people for their greatest good. You don't operate out of fear, as we've talked a lot about today. Like you're not afraid. Of- you're not afraid. Yeah. That person is not just an extension of the boogeyman thing that you're afraid of. Mm. Is an actual material, physical being who's made in the image of God, who is a being who is loved by God. And, oh, by the way, God doesn't have a race. We image God more fully together as white and black people, as... Caucasians and Asians and Latinos and African Americans and actual Africans and actual African like everybody. <laughs> yeah, I don't care. You're a human being, you know. And our culture put these social constructs. Yeah, totally. but, yeah. but that's where yeah. we as a church have to come in and go. No, there's a different way. Absolutely. And that's where it's important to go back in history to know that our country was built off of greed and comfort and creating race at all, so that it would lift up one quote, like race over another. But to your point, God created different ethnicities. I mean, at the Tower of Babel, he scattered us to different nations, giving us then different nationalities and ethnicities, like with our skin colors and all these, we all have, I mean, if you go to the Dominican Republic, everybody's a bunch of different tones of black. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, but they all speak the same language. Yeah, it's totally. an ethnicity and a nation and a nationality. That's yeah, what created. And at the end of the day, that's the thing that, you know, Curtis and you're talking about the gospel. When we as a church, as a body, we're a family, you know. Right. And when we as a family come together under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus to live out the kingdom of God then while atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation between man and God is a central aspect of the gospel, what I'm saying is where that is real, then what you see is an outworking of that reconciliation into every single facet of life. Mm -hmm. Because you're driven by love 
and not by some Promethean attempt at controlling your own kingdom Mm -hmm. because you can't get off the throne of your own life. I think that one of the natural outworkings of fear is you take the lowest common denominator and you make that person the standard for everybody. And I think that's where a lot on both sides where we get it wrong, where it's like, hey, the lowest, so Derek Chauvin, I think that's his name. If he is the lowest common denominator right now, all of a sudden, all police are racist. Yep. And now we have a racist police force. And it's like, no. And then on the other side, it's like, hey, just being in our uh, cultural context, we probably know black people who you do not want to define the rest of black people by. Yep. And we all know those people. And it's like, hey, you need to get your life together, dog. I love you, but this would be bad if everybody was like <laughs> Yeah, you. but that's not a race uh, problem. That's a, that's a human yeah, problem. That's a human problem. That's what I'm saying. Totally, so yeah. I, it's, it's a cop, black, white. Yeah, that's it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's the that's outworking of fear. Where right. it's like, hey, to keep myself safe and keep myself comfortable, like Liz said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep myself away from what I've seen. Where it's right. like, bro, I can give you a whole different image of what the gospel looks like worked out. I bet you me, Liz and Curtis can give you a whole different image of what the gospel looks like worked out through black culture. Yeah. But if you don't take that step of, hey, trying to do fellowship with us mm. because of I'm working on it from a fear perspective, the most common denominator is what I expect out of everybody. Therefore, I'm not going to interact with you. And if I do interact with you, I'm not going to let you get very close to me. Okay, you just do us all harm. Yep. So that's the outworking the fear where it's yeah. like the lowest common denominator is what's normal now. Yeah. It's like, no, like if I said that about all pastors, every pastor had a moral failure. Okay, all of them had moral failure. It's like, no, yeah. there are people in every system, every race, every job that's not going to maybe do an excellent job or do something totally atrocious. But it's like, I, I want to have a sober-minded view of saying, hey, that sin working out in his life, and just because that sin works out in his life that way, that doesn't mean it's common for everybody else that looks like him or has the same role. Mm, so good. I think yeah. that's the way we have to protect ourselves and being sober minded where it's like, Hey, not all police officers are racist. Mm. Yeah. He, he may have been racist or even incompetent. I don't know. Yeah. But at the same time, I know some pretty good police officers. Yeah, totally. I'm not going to put that on them. So that's how a fear outworking plays our view of people. And then that can, stop us from interacting with people. Who yeah. Actually- and it's, it's not Christian. <laughs> I mean, to go back to the thing that's been driving all of this, like first John four, there is no fear in love, mm-hmm. but perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. yeah. That's the crazy thing. Like when you're operating out of fear, you can't be operating out of love. Yeah. And so well, you're like, well, but I am afraid. It's like, well then talk to Jesus about that. Mm-hmm. He can heal you. And then he can give you the kind of love where you're not afraid and you are going to engage the way that Jesus would. I think that also we when we talk about race and just the superiority, inferiority complex, it didn't evolve just in America. There were philosophers in the past, the platonic thinkers that thought through those lenses of keeping people separate and thinking that these people may have more intellect than this culture. Like I always tell my friends, let's stop using the word white race, black race, because like we're all one race. Amen. And we share different ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all came from Adam. And Amen. and so when we understand that and we understand that construct, because I've seen some great systematic theology writers, they will be fighting against social Darwinism and just, you know, Darwinism of the day and, you know, evolution. But then on the other end, they published this book in the 40s and the 50s. And then they'll say something like, yeah, but we've tried to evangelize African-Americans and a 40-year-old African-American only has the intellectual capacity of a a 15-year-old Caucasian child. And it's like, okay, you just went against Darwinism. (laughs) 
But then you just use the same ideology with the Bible. Mm -hmm. Do we want to be those people? Do we want to be the people in the 60s that was advocating and being silenced when they were saying blacks and whites only and you still understood scripture in the Bible? Do we want to be blind to our own blindness? Because we're living in a historical moment. And the question is going to be asked 50 years. What did you do when you were unpopular? in 2020, and we're in 2045. What did you do in that time with the gospel that you believed in, even when nobody didn't believe in you and didn't say what you did? Because it's those unpopular things that you have to do. Like there was a lot of people in the general culture that believed that we should drink from separate water fountains. But as we're standing here today, what is that water fountain that's in front of us that may look different, but it's going to be the spirit that leads us to be able to see the things that the culture cannot see? Mm-hmm. That's, good. that's awesome. Hey, can I add one more thing? Sure. When you ask everybody, hey, what's not helpful? What I would tell my Caucasian brothers is don't say, hey, I'm colorblind. <laughs> I think yeah. that that does the church no good. One, I'm not ever getting in the car with you again because what do you do at a stoplight? <laughs> and two, uh, <laughs> what do you do at a stoplight? And then two, you're minimizing the beauty and providence of God. That's right. I don't want to go towards the Dallas Arboretum and say, hey, I'm colorblind. No, I see all the flowers. And it's beautiful and it shows God's providence and bringing those flowers together. And it shows how he can use those flowers to put his beauty on display. In the same way, it's like, hey, I don't, I'm not colorblind. Yes, yeah, I am black and I love you. And mm-hmm. that, that goes such, such a far away rather than like, hey, I'm colorblind. I understand their sentiment. I just think words matter. And I don't think it's, uh, it's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not helpful. I so. love it. Well, Karen. <laughs> he takes a deep breath. <laughs> I mean, let me ask you this, Karen. What do you want to say to the white evangelical church hmm. right now? I mean, I think even as I've been listening and as I'm in taking information, <laughs> um, I just am encouraged that as complicated as the issue is, as tangled as the web becomes, the answer is so simple. Hmm. And like, how good is our God that hmm. the answer would be so simple hmm. and that it is the gospel? that it is love. I mean, he said, come to me like children. And so we sit at his feet like children and we ask him to help us. Mm. And so I would just encourage everybody listening to do that today, to sit at his feet like a child and say, God, help me. Mm. That's good. Yeah. What's interesting too is, we, you know, we've been talking primarily just about whites and blacks here, but the one who we follow was a brown-skinned Middle Eastern man. Yeah, he was. Know. He's not like all the f- pictures we see painted in, in the 1600s. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm just like, well, then perhaps continuing to remain in the school of Jesus mm. is the best place to be. Because I think what he teaches us is how to love. By this will people know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Love is the, it's the fulfillment of the law. The goal of the commands of Scripture is love. And you can't love anything that you objectify. You can't love something that you don't invest in. You can't love something that you don't have a relationship with. And so I would just encourage all of my brothers and sisters out there that have my hue of skin to get outside of yourself get uncomfortable. There's a much bigger world out there than the world that each of us live in. And I would encourage you to seek to understand, be quick to listen. 
slow to speak, slow to become angry. And I think to look for creative ways, not in any kind of like a neurotic sense, like I got to do this today, but just to talk to Jesus about it and be like, hey, this is clearly an issue that's going on in our culture, in our country right now. And we need to, as Christians, we need to speak into it and be a voice that represents the king. Hey, guys, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Curtis, thanks, man. Thank you. Elizabeth, thank you. You're welcome. Stedman, thanks for jumping on with us, man. We really appreciate it. Anytime, brother. Yeah, you the man. Anytime. And if you want to interact with us on this, really any of us, frankly, you have questions, you have ideas, you have pushback, whatever. You can shoot us an email at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. But I think as we go out of here, I think just to fix our eyes on Jesus and to follow him wherever he leads, knowing that where he's leading us is the best place for us. Liz, why don't you pray us out? Yeah. Father, I thank you um, that you are the source of all wisdom and that, oh, Lord, that in our um, imperfect minds and hearts and just sinful, disgusting hearts, really, Lord, that um, you've given us a very simple answer to all of the issues that we face in our own culture. And Lord, I, uh, I thank you that you have already overcome all of this as you continue to overcome it in a current sense. But Lord, I just pray against just the division of the enemy. Mm. That is the one card he holds. And the one thing he's ever, ever tried to do is just divide. So Lord, it is comforting to know that we know exactly what the problem is and that we know exactly how to overcome it and that we in our sinful flesh are the only ones that are standing in our own way. So Lord, I just pray that, as Curtis said, in 20 years, how are we going to look back at 2020 at this pivotal moment where we know what the problem is and we know how to fix it? Did we speak up? And Lord, I pray that our church, that the church would do just that, Lord. So I just pray that we would, as a body of believers, cling to you as we begin to move toward each other and that we would move toward each other out of love for you, um, like we talked about today. So, Father, I just pray for the state of our country and the state of our world. And, Lord, I just pray that we are going to do the work. (laughs) Only you can see into the future, and only you can change hearts. But, Lord, that we would begin to repent and, in all humility, turn to you for the answer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. As always, if you have questions, please email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Leave us a rating on iTunes. And I hope you all have a great week. Bye. Peace.